average, over 5,000 students at American universities are awarded PhDs in the humanities each year. Where is all this talent headed? What are these scholars doing? You're listening to Careers in the Public Humanities, a podcast that explores the range of careers open to PhDs beyond the tenure track. Each episode, we'll interview a PhD who has put their degree to use in innovative ways within cultural institutions, in digital and media production, in state or federal agencies, and other literary and cultural publics, in hopes of inspiring other humanities PhDs to broaden the view of their career possibilities. This podcast is produced by English PhD students and alumni from the University of Rhode Island and has been made possible by Humanities at Large, a URI initiative funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities Next Generation PhD Grant Program. Greetings, listeners. This is Rachel Basio. I am back again in the sound room of the Harrington School of Communication and Media at the University of Rhode Island. Today we commence the 2017 fall season of Careers in the Public Humanities, and with me to do this is Dr. James Golden, Director of Education at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford, Connecticut. Welcome, James. I am truly delighted to speak with you today because in so many ways, your scholarly and professional life illustrate the kind of public humanities work we celebrate here at the podcast. Can you start by telling us about your role as Director of Education at the Mark Twain House? Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, So my role as Director of Education has a couple of different strands to it, a few areas of responsibility. The main one is that I am in charge of our K-12 education programming and our relationship with colleges and universities. So when a a school comes to visit the Mark Twain House, um, it's my job to make sure that what they experience meets curriculum standards. I work with school districts and teachers to do teacher teacher training and uh, generally advertise the museum to them, work with them to make sure we're relevant to their curricula. I also work with the colleges. So we have very important partnerships with the University of Connecticut and um, also Capital Community College. We're trying to start one with Central Connecticut State University, but with um, with Capital, we teach a class, an actual community college class, entirely through the museum's collections and resources. This is co-taught with the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, our next door neighbor. So you have uh, 10 community college students and myself, a person from the Stowe Center, my colleague there who's also as a doctorate, um, Katie Burton and Dr. Jeff Partridge, Chair of Humanities at Capital. That's three PhDs and 10 community college students. That's kind of more <laughs> firepower than most R1 universities bring to a literature seminar. The That's other wonderful. thing that, um, another big part of it is academic public programming. So I run a lecture series at the, at the museum um, and help bring in our more scholarly speakers. The majority of public programming uh, doesn't fall under my responsibility. That's in the marketing and communications department. And the last big thing I do is our community outreach programs. So when a library or community association or anybody like that wants a speaker from the Mark Twain House, that's usually me. Um, Occasionally, it's our curatorial department, depending on the topic of the lecture, but I'm the booking agent for that. So I've gone out to... Uh, you know, as far away as Georgia and Minnesota to do lectures for the museum. I just got back from doing some 
Mark Twain lectures on a Mark Twain themed riverboat cruise to the Upper Mississippi. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about that later. Yes. Yeah, that's really fun. <laughs> um, but you know, sometimes you have in these library talks two hundred people who are fantastic and ask wonderful questions and are really into it. And then sometimes, well, one of them was me, the librarian, and a really nice man named Bob. <laughs> he was lovely. He had Bob a great lots time. Lots of attention. Oh, yeah, he was fantastic. So a lot of variety. Wonderful. Um, that is very fantastic and very busy. I've been to your remarkable museum Thank many you. times, and I've been fortunate to meet a number of talented people on staff. They represent, um, as you mentioned, a diverse range of disciplinary training. What is your, can you let us know something of your academic specialization? How do you draw on your deep scholarly knowledge in your role as director? Um, so my initial research was on 19th century Britain and Ireland, particularly religion, secularization, national identity. I'm an historian. Um, and Mark Twain is actually really interesting when I look at him through the lens of religion. He had fascinating views in organized religion. But my initial research doesn't gigantically overlap with mm -hmm. what I'm doing now. Being a 19th centuryist is hugely helpful, so I do draw a lot on the general period. But what's more relevant to me are the skills that I learned as uh, a researcher. The ability to well, do archival research, to synthesize yeah. information, to find new ways of communicating it to people, that's all very important. Being comfortable with understanding and navigating academic debates historiography. So the, the general hist historical skills and the historiographical skills very much buoy me, but I'm a little far from my initial research. I've tr basically tried to make myself a Mark Twain scholar now. Mm -hmm. I just gave a paper at the quadrennial Mark Twain conference, which was pretty terrifying and exciting at the same time. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, so you're, you're, you're talking about the sort of, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the kind of move from the strict academic world to the world of what we might call public humanities, mm -hmm. which is a, a, a pre preoccupation for us here mm -hmm. at, the, at the podcast. Um, but just to back up, what challenges did you face in moving from the academy, very conventionally conceived as a PhD student, I know later as a postdoc, um, to this non-academic cultural institution where you had to manage budgets, right, do uh, general administrative work? Um, can you speak about that adjustment? It was big. <laughs> um, Do you elaborate? <laughs> yes, yes, I can. Um, and not, not much shock. Uh, <laughs> I, I can live through it again. No, it's, um, it, it's really a change. The, the variety of what's coming at you on a daily basis. Yeah. When I was a PhD student, my day consisted of the library and writing and research seminars and arguing in the pub about the research seminars. <laughs> and as a postdoc, there was a little more structure, but it was still kind of all in the same key. And on a daily basis today, I can, I can teach a fourth grade class, or I can teach a high school class, or I can teach this college class. Um, we might have a meeting about budget or working with the grant writer to do uh, reporting to funders who support education programs, working with the communications and marketing department, going out externally and representing the museum at different uh, organizations. So I'm, a, I'm part of some, uh, some sort of academic oversight committees for other area institutions, um, such as the Hartford Heritage Project, which is a very cool program that uses the city of Hartford as a cultural resource and an educational resource. So there's just, it, 
a lot of different things to change gears a lot more quickly than I normally would have to do. And I never had to read a spreadsheet when mm-hmm. I was a PhD student. That that was a new and exciting skill. Um, I never had to do budget projections or anything like that. So it, it does come in, you know, there's a lot going on. What this comes down to, though, is that I have a responsibility to help keep the lights on at the Mark Twain mm-hmm. house. We have to keep our doors open. That's mm-hmm. that's really meaningful to me. Yeah. I believe what we're doing is important. I believe that the institution needs to last for the next 100 years. It was built in 1874. I wanted to keep on going as long as possible. And so I never had to wonder when I was in the university about what was the purpose, where are we going, how do we stay open. Um, we're not in, in immediate danger of closing by any means, but we certainly need support. We do not have... Uh, we rely on individual donations, some corporate and foundation support, ticket sales. We receive very little money from the state. We were great, very grateful for what we do receive. And so you have to get creative and thoughtful and really build community relations and build up your uh, meaning to stakeholders. That's awesome. That means we know we're relevant. We know we're doing something useful. And so all of the administration, all of the new skills and budgets and all of that, that has a very immediate and practical purpose, which I never got to experience in my academic career. This is a lot more tangible. Mm. And you're making me think about, um, you know, oftentimes when we're doing academic research, when we're in our sort of insular lives within the academy, right, we have to, it it is hard. um, And we're constantly asking each other, right, about our own projects, like, why does this matter to somebody else, right? Like, like the kind of terrifying, like, sort of, so what question, you know, Mm -hmm. to like one person's exciting project, right? So it seems like as you're talking, what I'm, what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing, even radiating from your, your body is a (laughs) sense of that, that there is so much at stake, you know, in the work that you're doing, which is lovely. Yeah. I mean, there was a time very very early on in my experience at the museum where I was at the front desk and a, a phone call came in, just kind of a general informational, you know, the first line you get. And the other person at the front desk answered the phone and very patiently explained very slowly where the name Mark Twain came from because his real name was Samuel Clemens. Mark Twain is a pen name. And he explained it multiple times and he slowed down. And you could tell he was talking to people who were in a very noisy place And when he finally hung up the phone, he went, well, that was a call from Boulder, Colorado. They were having a liquid lunch. They got into a uh, debate about where Mark Twain's name came from, and we just settled a bet. I thought, that is amazing. I am in a place where we have that level of meaning, that level of relevance. People really care, and they look to us to be public stewards of this person who is a central figure of American identity. Yes. I, I never got the random lunchtime drunk phone call when I was a PhD <laughs> student. I mean, I did. They're for my friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, many of our listeners are currently pursuing positions on the academic job market, which can be daunting, as you know. Can you tell us about your own job search? You might elaborate on your postdoc that you mentioned. I know you were at University of Cambridge. Am I right that you ran a seminar series on active citizenship, public engagement, and the humanities, all issues of great concern to us here? 
Yes, that was um, a collaboration to myself and another postdoc um, and our my, my boss at the time, the person, Dr. Mike Higton, who was managing the research project I was a part of. Um, and that was a seminar series on, on those themes, and it we got different speakers in from outside of the university to give talks on public engagement and active citizenship as they understood it. And they're all really interesting, but it it brought home to me that we were talking about ideas about going out into the public, but that that's as far as we got. And people were reporting on the public engagement work they were doing, but it, at the PhD at the PhD student level, it just seemed like we were still in this mode of we're going to talk about it, we're going to talk about it, and we weren't necessarily getting out and actually doing it ourselves. And so, and the model there was very often opening up the university to new people, giving the university's knowledge to a wider public, mm. but it wasn't very reciprocal. Mm. We weren't necessarily mm. doing a good job of listening to what the public actually cared about or taking their interests and responding. Um, I'm not trying to criticize this. The seminar series I was part of, it was incredibly interesting and we did great stuff, but it crystallized to me how uh, precise the idea of public engagement was, and at least for a lot of our speakers, it was kind of a one-way street. Mm -hmm. It was, I'm going to give the public the benefit of what I've known, which is awesome, but you've got to listen as well. Yeah. So in terms of my, my job search from that, I was in the UK, as you mentioned, I was in Cambridge, and um, I applied for lots of academic jobs. I was I interviewed for a number of them. I ended up moving back home. I am from Hartford, Connecticut, and I went back to work at the Mark Twain House where I'd been in college as, you know, as a tour guide over the summers. Um, and I worked in the museum store right after high school. And I was applying for you know more academic jobs. I was just grinding out the applications and being a historical interpreter, a tour guide simultaneously. And it was an incredible contrast to go from a day spent answering people's questions that they genuinely cared about to then trying to write research proposals and thinking there's so much more immediate meaning in what I'm doing. To, you know, if I care about history, mm. what I've done all day and, and bringing people into an historic site, trans, having them have this transformative experience of being in the same place where Mark Twain mm. and his family lived, that's probably a better job serving history or a more immediate job serving history than all of the very diffuse applications I'm making. And so... In the winter of um, 2014, the position of education director became available, and I applied for it, and things worked out. So I've been in this post since January of 2015. And what would you say? Um, what would you say are some of the takeaways for you? Some of what you've learned from people who have come into to the Mark Twain House Museum. So in, in your role as a public historian engaging with other people, because I, I, I think it's important what you're saying about that two-way, you know, that we do have as academics a great deal to learn from the publics that we want to engage with. So what have you learned from students? What have you learned from all sorts of, you know, people who come into the museum and engage um, about history? What do you learn, have learned about history, about public memory, about the role of humanities today? Um, it's really been clear how much history is a constituent part of people's identities. Mm. And it's not something that only lives in historiographical debates. 
And you have to be really careful because to me, it's really obvious that Mark Twain, because I've read a lot of what he wrote and I've been in his papers and I'm... In his house. Yeah, in his house. <laughs> um, he was very critical of organized religion at times in his life. He was very critical of patriotism towards the end mm. of his life. Sure. Um, this is somebody who said things that would be considered deeply anti-American sure. according to a certain strain of political discourse. And yet he is one of these cherished American icons of sort of homespun Americana, for want of a better word. Um, how do you find a way of taking somebody for whom he represents a pure, undiluted throwback to an, a gentler time and say, actually, he was really subversive. Yeah. He was really critical. And you would not like some of the stuff he said. So... Finding a way of doing that gently um, and respectfully, that's been really interesting. There's also just the, um, uh, you know, unexpected questions. You know, you, you can you get the same 20 questions on a lot of tours, but then you also get really different ones. And so that's been fascinating as well, just to see the diversity of responses people have to the same space. Mm. And that made me think about how well-trained I was to respond to texts a certain way, sure. to, at, you know, to ask certain kinds of questions. There's a good question and a bad question in a seminar <laughs> culture, and you don't want to ask a bad question. Well, what, what is it when the visitor can ask any question they want, and you're totally unprepared for that kind of creativity? Mm. That's fantastic. Um, there's also, I mean, I think my, my, best, my favorite visitors are the ones who came in with very little expectations and went away curious. Mm. And I, I knew I'd prompted them to buy a book, preferably in our gift shop. But, um, <laughs> you know, if I get somebody to read, that was awesome. Yeah. If I can send a visitor out with curiosity to, to read more of Mark Twain's books, that's a serious win. I never want a museum visitor to go, well, that was great. When's lunch? You know, you want them to sort of go, God, there's so much more that I didn't know or I, I can, you know. And we get this all the time. People say, I had no idea. If there's, there was so much to know here. And if you're in the humanities professionally, you go, yes, of course, there's always more to know. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's evident that there is this whole vast body of knowledge. But the helping people, midwifing people towards delight and discovery is a really cool thing. That's what a lot of teachers experience. But to get to do it with people who are no longer in school, who no longer have that moment of discovery on a daily basis. Adults maybe last studied history in the Eisenhower administration. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. You're making me think about, because I'm so familiar um, with the space itself of yeah. the museum, that people um, might, listening to this podcast, might not be able to picture. So maybe you can say a little bit about, the. there's obviously two parts of the museum, right? Mm -hmm. There's the house itself, so you can talk a little bit about that. And then behind it is this really beautiful, state-of-the-art, sort of Twain Center. Mm -hmm. And so my question is really two-part. I mean, I, I want to have you sort of explain that space a little bit to our listeners. Um, but also, to th I'm, I'm curious when you are, um, something you said earlier about, about the subversive nature of Tween, he's also this larger-than-life personality, yeah. right, that was, that has been, you know, has, has sort of um, been shaped by our remembrances of him, but seem also really true to life, that he mm -hmm. was in his own time, this, like, really huge, you know, uh, character. Yeah. And I mean, so, there's, there's no Hemingway impersonator circuit, is there? No, exactly. Um, he's so, one I of mean, the few authors who is as famous as his characters. Yes. So I, if you can just say something about, two, well, two things, both how you try to 
it seems like a really daunting task to represent Mark Twain. Like of all the people that one might think they're going to sort of speak for or represent, that seems like a really huge task. Um, and then so if you can sort of fold that into the, the space of the museum, which is like part Twain, right? He occupied this home. You can say something of his spirit is there. His belongings are there. But then there's this other building that's incredibly contemporary. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where do you feel Mark Twain when you're there? How do you communicate him as a person to yeah. your audience? So the house itself is the 25-room mansion that he and his wife, Olivia Clemens, built between 1873 and 1874. They lived there until 1891 um, when they moved basically to to Europe uh, for what was going to be an indefinite period of time. They ran into some money trouble, and it was easier to live abroad than manage a large house with a large staff of servants. When they built this house, um, Mark Twain was in his mid-30s. His wife was 10 years younger than he and this was the first time he really had a permanent home and settled down. Um, this is the period of his life when he wrote his most important books. So living in Hartford, then summers in Elmira, New York, where his wife was from, um, this is the time when he wrote Tom Sawyer, uh, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, The Prince and the Pauper, Life in the Mississippi. Just a few yeah, big um, ones. The 20 years in Hartford, 71 to 91, of which 74 to 91 were in the house, and then the summers in Elmira when he did a lot of his actual putting pen on paper, this was the the key period of his mm-hmm. life when his family were growing up. The house itself is majestically beautiful. It is ornate and gorgeous. The interiors were done on the ground floor and the public areas of the house by decorating firm of associated artists. This is Lewis Comfort Tiffany, Candace Wheeler, Lockwood DeForest, Samuel Coleman. These are gigantic names yeah. of uh, American decorative arts. At the same time they were working on the Clemens home, they, they were about to start a commission. They just finished a commission for the Garfield White House. Yeah. So there is, you know, that tells you the, the category in which the Clemenses are moving. Yeah. So a lot of people walk into the space and go, oh, I had no idea it looked like this. Because they think of Mississippi River, yeah. Huck on a raft, <laughs> you know, little whitewashed fence. They don't think 25-room mansion covered in hand-stenciled paint in southern New England. Yeah. They don't think that Mark Twain would have a mosque lamp dangling from his uh, <laughs> ceiling in his front hall, or the front hall be themed North Africa. Yeah, That's the environment. And that does that gives us an amazing chance to, to complexify sure. Twain. Say, you know, he's not this person that you think he is. Yeah, he had a public persona as this Western humorist, but he's a lot more serious, intellectually substantive, and actually very comfortable in elite society. Mm-hmm. He was a cosmopolitan figure. He was very yes. happy in the um, in Delmonico's, for example, in New York. He was on the train to Boston and New York all the time, so he's not a yokel. Um, the The museum center we built about 12 years ago uh, it has a 175-seat theater. It has mm-hmm. a permanent uh, exhibition on Mark Twain's life. It has a second gallery where we mount our special exhibitions. We currently have an exhibition on Mark Twain's top 10 temper tantrums um, <laughs> and righteous rages up there. We also have an exhibition on the restoration of a portion of the house called the Mahogany Suite. We um, have a classroom space, so it gives us a chance to do all kinds of public programming we wouldn't have a chance to do when we were just the house. So yeah. we can host lectures. Next week, we have a beer festival. She would have thoroughly approved. Um, <laughs> we, we have Certainly. a writer's weekend next weekend. There's all kinds of public events 
ranging from performances and concerts to author talks to lectures. It gives us, gives us a chance to take his spirit and his ideas and communicate what we see as uh, his relevance and contemporary inheritors of his purpose into the public. This might be a good time to let listeners know about the event you are hosting with UConn faculty on November 8th. Yes, on the anniversary of the election, we are going to host a panel discussion on the theme of Mark Twain and fragile American democracy. Mm. Um, there'll be members of the UConn faculty from the departments of history, sociology, philosophy, and political science, chaired by the dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, Professor Davida Glasberg, and introduced by our museum's executive director, Peter Roos. All of the faculty members will respond to the same passage of the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court from their different disciplinary perspectives and tie Twain's ideas of fragility of democracy and the potential for public corruption to contemporary American life. Uh, that's one of our more serious programs. I did mention a beer festival, <laughs> so we do that kind of stuff. We also have family programming. Hmm. Um, we recently had a uh, jumping frog contest with a frogapult <laughs> that was um, extremely cute and really fun. So we're, we're very keen to explore the range. Twain was a humorist. He was also an incredibly serious writer. Having this November 8th panel on literature, democracy, and having family programming lets us bring out lots of different voices. That's great. And my, my uh, sense is also that Twain was a serious and devoted father. Mm -hmm. And so um, can you say something about he had three children, three girls living in, growing up during this time in this house? Yes, three daughters, Susie, Clara, and Jean, um, in that birth order. Their first child was a boy named Langdon who passed away as a toddler. But the three girls grew up in the house, and he told them bedtime stories at night. Um, so we, you know, you have one of the great writers mm -hmm. practicing his storytelling chops on his daughters. There was actually a storytelling game where they had to use, um, they, they made him use every object on their very ornate mantelpiece covered in Victorian bric-a-brac as um, characters in the bedtime stories. He would also tell them stories based on pictures in magazines. And actually recently a um, Twain scholar found a fragment of one of these bedtime That's stories beautiful. And it's been turned into a children's book, which is being published on September 26th, called The Purloining of Prince Olio Margarine. And a portion of profits from this book will go to support the Mark Twain House and Museum. So we'd love for you to uh, support us and support the continuing publication of a story that is based on a fragment of a story that Twain told his children. The children are a very important part of the life in the house, as is his wife, Olivia, known as Livy. She was the budgetary manager. She ran a staff of servants. It's a full-time job. Um, she was also his first editor. Hmm. She would actually turn down the corner of pages and say, more work needed here. Um, nothing goes to the publisher until Livy's had a chance to see it. Um, the, the Gilded Age, the book that titles an entire era of American history, co-written by Mark Twain and his neighbor, Charles Dudley Warner, this who was the editor of the Hartford Current, one of the editors, this began when he and Warner were teasing their wives about the quality of novels they were reading. They said, fine, write a better one. So they, they wrote a kind of uh, a chapter each alternating with each other, and the wives would jury which chapter lived and which chapter died. So you can <laughs> see 
this intellectual dinner party culture, the importance of really intellectually engaged women critiquing their husband's writing, this kind of atmosphere of storytelling and dinner parties and intellectually charged guests coming in to the neighborhood is a huge part of the literary success of the Clemens family. This neighborhood was called Nook Farm, also included Harriet Beecher Stowe, Joseph Hawley, who was a Civil War hero and U.S. senator. So it's a very intellectual environment for him to flourish. Uh, We want that part to be part of the story. We want his daughters to be part of the story. We also want the servants to be part of the story. Patrick McAleer, the coachman, Katie Leary, their lady's maid, Mm. George Griffin, their butler. Um, These are all major figures in the life of the family. And the house. Yeah. I mean, um, Griffin was born as an enslaved person and served, you know, supported the Union Army during the war, came north after the war and served the Clemenses for, um, you know, 16 of the 17 years they were in the house. Patrick McAleer, their coachman, is an immigrant from Ireland, worked on and off from 1870 to 1905. Katie Leary was there for decades and decades and decades. So the house was a family home and a a literary space. It's also a site of labor for an immigrant population. Mm -hmm. And that's an incredibly important element to our story as well. Excellent. Um, Thinking about some of the um, uh, other work beyond historical, straight historical work that's done at the museum. Obviously, there is restoration work Mm -hmm. and all sorts of artistic work. Um, but I'm thinking because uh, I'm thinking of, of certain P- English PhDs uh, here at URI that are working at the intersection of language and object. Um, I'm thinking about how that is done in the museum. And I'm wondering if you can say something about how your staff work with exhibition text. Certainly. Um, so the curators are Beatrice Fox Auerbach, chief curator Tracy Brindle, and assistant curator Mallory Howard are um, a phenomenal team and put together a uh, major exhibition every single year with a very small staff. It's them plus a few others of us, uh, including myself, doing a small, very small portion of that. Um, y- objects are as valid a source for history as any other kind of written evidence. They're a source of constant fascination, reinterpretation, and we have a small collection which we use in lo- uh, to, to exhibit and display and, and focus people's thoughts about history in a way that's different than just books or historical images. So when you're when writing an exhibition, it's very uh, important to lay out extremely clear themes, mm. establish this in section panels, and then use your individual labels for an object to try and build a consistent narrative mm-hmm. that simultaneously interprets each object and communicates why it's in this bigger picture, how it's in dialogue with other objects, either in the same vitrine or in in the broader exhibition. And you can use, you can tell as many stories as you want about each object. Any artifact can be interpreted any different way and can have different meaning depending on the theme of that exhibition or or what you're trying to communicate about it. So we, we have to, we really struggle to say everything we want to say, and you just can't. You have to pick something and, and make that what leads about that object for that exhibition. So imagine you're writing an article and you have seven to 10,000 words and you, you know, you're struggling. Well, boil that down to a three-by-five yeah. object label. Um, you don't have a lot of space. You also have to remember this is being read by non-specialists. Right. There are some people who will read everything in an exhibition. There are some people who will skim. 
There are some people who will never re never read anything. Um, you have to find a way of being engaging and communicate to them. And so you're researching with the same level of rigor as you would if you're writing for academic publication. You're trying to engage with the same kind of nuance, but your audience is completely different. Mm. And their their level of backstory, their, 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 the knowledge they're bringing to this exhibition, yeah. you cannot count on. So you're always in a battle of how much backstory do we give them, how much is necessary, how much will they will they pick up as they go through. Um, it's a really fascinating exercise as somebody accustomed to having a lot more space. Yeah. I mean, there's the classic. Um, if I had more time, it would have been shorter. Yeah. That that is very much the the issue at stake in a museum exhibition. Excellent. Um, you've you've been part of. I know you're aware that we are. Um, you're. you're causing me to think here, we are in the process of, in the English department at URI right now, um, rethinking, revisiting our doctoral training in English, um, trying to make sure that we're best preparing English PhDs for the, for the, the various work that um, um, PhDs are doing in their world in the 21st century. And so I, I'm wondering, based on everything we've just been discussing, um, all the ways, you know, all the ways in which your own journey had, you know, your move from from um, the institution, the academic institution to a, a cultural institution, a public institution. Um, if you have any ideas or advice for prospective or current humanities PhDs um, in the climate that we're in, academic and political. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um. Aside from the, well, I think a lot of universities, not necessarily individual scholars, but a lot of universities have engaged in a kind of trickle-down economics argument hmm. where, yeah, what we do on a daily basis doesn't resonate with the public, but eventually gets there. Hmm. And trust us, eventually it gets there. And I, I'm, I'm not convinced of this. Yeah. And so I, I really welcome institutions like URI that are trying to make uh, publicly public-minded scholarship central to the entire process. Um, obviously, there's you don't need people don't need me to say that the adjunctification of universities continues. And I, I am actually an adjunct professor as well as being a museum education director. I, I have kept my toe in mm. those waters, which has been a, a good comparison and a good contrast. But um, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurial opportunity. For scholars, you might be writing in a different format. You might be blogging more. You might be podcasting more. But there's always a venue to try and communicate to the public. Um, there are institutions that are that that try and match scholars to um, non-academic institutions. I know the, I think it's the American Council of Learned Societies runs a match program, which is I'm just going to shameless free advertising because yeah. it's a really cool program. But um, I, I can't think of a time when somebody is going to say, oh, we don't need somebody who can do research, who can synthesize information, and who can communicate. Now, the museum field is as competitive as academia. Sure, absolutely. Um, there are all, I do not have a museum studies degree, um, and I'm, I'm sort of an oddball. I'm not representative of my industry in having a doctorate at my position. I wonder if that's going to increase. Um, and as more and more people are expecting terminal degrees. I know a lot of academic administration at universities now want um, terminal degrees and PhDs for senior administrators. That, that's an increasing trend. Mm. I, I think the 
traditional route, such as it is, might be diminishing. But it's important to bear in mind that that tradition has basically been around for less than 100 years. Yeah. Um, universities are some of the oldest institutions in the world, but they're also some of the most malleable. Yeah. And we need Certainly. to not be mired in what is expected or standard or normal. Sure. Excellent. Thank you. Um, I would like just to end with asking you to reflect on some terms that we've been using um, as if they're fixed and that even between us, we understand what they mean. So one is public historian and the other is public humanities. And I know these are really fluid terms. And so um, I'm all of us here at the podcast continue to think through what they mean. And we're thinking through them um, in the English department, particularly the, the idea of, of public humanities and different literary publics. So if we can just close maybe with you kind of sharing what your thoughts are on the term public historian or public humanities, what that means and what, what its stakes are. Sure. I mean, it's interesting if you think about what the opposite would be. Nobody's mm. going to argue for private humanities or <laughs> um, private history. And I There's don't think... There's a lot of privatizers. <laughs> well, yeah. But, um, but yes. I... I I think it's incumbent on all humanities scholars to be public in yes. a certain way. It's incumbent sure. on all universities. And no university ever says that they're not serving the public good in some Absolutely. capacity. But they do is a different story. But everybody wants to claim that they're, they have some public service at their core. The big difference really is audience. Mm. Um, who are you trying to serve? And at the museum, we are trying to serve the... 65 to 70,000 visitors we see every single year. Amazing. And anything that I've, what I've published behind peer review and paywall and all that has probably a higher status than the tours I've given or the public lectures I've given or the classes I've taught. But those have reached a lot more people. Mm. And that's really really interesting and a good comparison to think about how many, you know, what the readership sure. of some of the sure. journals are. Um, you know, but even within that, the general public is not general. Museums serve a small section of society. Um, generally, it's middle class white women over the age of 55. Mm -hmm. nothing, nothing wrong with that constituency, but, but we don't, as a field, reach everybody. And so even within, you know, from, a from a university standpoint, we're, we're, we're serving the general public more than they are, but actually a lot of student bodies will be more diverse than our museum Sure. Membership. We do actually have a very, at the Mark Twain House, a pretty good, diverse audience base, and we can always do more. Every institution can do more, but no one should ever be comfortable and complacent about who the public are or assume they're fixed or assume mm. they're static. We have a huge international audience. We have visitors from England and Germany all the time. We, India is a huge source of our Facebook likes at the Mark Twain House. Wow, that's amazing. Because Twain is read all over the world. Yeah. And yet there are people who grew up in Connecticut and it's just in their backyard and they either never go because it's in their backyard or they go all the time because it's in their backyard. So who, who actually is our public? Yeah. How do we decide which public to serve? Um, I think the most important takeaway for me about the public humanities is that Everybody who's, who ever read a book is engaged in public humanities on a certain level. It doesn't have to have a formal title or a codified mission statement behind it. It's happening around us. Mm. It, it's happening anyway. 
and yeah. we can jump into the river and be part of it, or we can try and, and define it ourselves and have everyone pass us by. Thank you, James, truly, for lending your time and wisdom to our podcast and for all of your work that you do to advance the cause of the humanities. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Careers in the Public Humanities. We hope you'll join us next time for an interview with Dr. Paul Erickson, Program Director for the Humanities, Arts, Education, and American Institutions at the American Academy of Arts and Science. Feel free to subscribe to our podcast at web.uri.edu slash nextgen.phd or find us on iTunes. Look for Careers in the Public Humanities. This podcast has been produced by Rachel Basio in conjunction with the University of Rhode Island English Department. Introduction and editing by Catherine Winters and Ryan Angley with music by Mark Seda. 